So when I was in my mid-20s or so, I'm guessing, I was invited by a friend of mine to be a part of uh, an accountability group. It was a, um, it was a men's accountability group at our church so obviously no ladies were allowed and I was a little bit nervous about you know going though I, I mean I was a little bit familiar with accountability groups but I didn't really know what this one was going to be like didn't really have uh, much information about it I was just told we we're going to have a men's accountability group and and it would be good for me to be there and so I was encouraged to go and I I went and on the very first day that I went I was handed this little card along with all the other guys who who were there and I looked at the card and at the very top of the card it said the magnificent seven like what is the magnificent seven then I looked a little bit further down the card and there were seven questions on that card and those questions were the magnificent seven questions that we were going to ask each other each and every single week that we showed up and of course the the idea behind it was that these were areas that we might tend to struggle in as men and so we wanted to hold each other accountable and if we knew that we were going to have to answer these questions openly and honestly then maybe if we were tempted in one of these areas throughout the week knowing that we were going to have to tell someone at some point in time we would be more reluctant to not enter into and engage in that temptation uh, because we were going to have to tell someone and we didn't want to have to suffer the embarrassment or admit our failure in those particular areas and you know that all sounds good doesn't it I mean that sounds like it's a it's a good thing to think about not sinning and trying to be more like Christ and having other guys hold you accountable in those areas. But the problem was that it didn't really work. <laughs> it, it didn't. Like it didn't keep us from sinning. <laughs> Each and every single week that I showed up, we had sinned. We had failed in those areas and we were having to admit our failures in those areas. And if we didn't, if we happened to have a good week or two every now and then, then, you know, really all it did was kind of allow us to stick our chest out a little bit more in, in pride and kind of, you know, look at me, look how good I was this week, boys. I was a little more holy than you were this week, right? And so that, the idea, although it was good, came from good motives it just really didn't work it didn't work for me there were areas of sin in my life that I wasn't able to experience victory over just because I had a group of guys who were supposed to be holding me accountable to not do those things anymore and ultimately what I found out and what I figured out along the way is that what I began to believe about myself was that these six areas of, 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 uh, that, that were struggles. By the way, let me read to you the questions just so you kind of get an idea of what I was walking into and a part of each and every single week. Question number one was, have you been with a woman anywhere this past week that might be seen as compromising? Question number two, have any of your financial dealings lacked integrity? Question number three, have you exposed yourself to any sexually explicit material? Question number four, have you spent adequate time in Bible study and in prayer? Question number five, have you given priority time 
to your family. Number six, have you fulfilled the mandates of your calling? And number seven, have you just lied to me? <laughs> <laughs> like, if you're going to get out of here lying to us, you're going to have to do it twice, brother. All right? And again, the idea was that if you have to answer to those things, and we're going to make sure you... Um, tell the truth and you're going to be more reluctant to do those things but what I found what I began to believe about myself was that these things were just part of who I was I mean I, I guess someone had decided that again these were areas that guys were going to typically struggle in and so I guess well I'm a guy so I guess I'm just going to struggle with lust or I'm a guy so I, I guess I'm just going to have a hard time with my finances and having integrity in the area of my finances. I'm a, I'm a guy and I guess that means I don't really want to read my Bible and pray so I have to have someone ask me to check in and make sure that I did it. I, I'm a guy. I guess I don't really want to spend time with my family that well and so I've got to have people ask me about it to make sure that I do it and I do you know my duty as a dad and a father and a husband to follow through with what I'm supposed to be doing kind of a thing and I just really bought into this whole thing that this is just part of who I am and so at some point I'm going to do it and at least I have some guys that I can be honest with and they can maybe keep me from going too far you know down the road but this is ultimately just part of who I am well, what I believed was that I am a sinner I'm a sinner who's saved by grace but I'm still a sinner. That's my identity. That's who I am at the core. And I'm just going to sin because that's what sinners do. As I've had conversations with other people over the years, I've found out that I'm not the only one who's bought into that idea of being a sinner and being labeled a sinner as part of your identity. Uh, many of you have told me stories about how you grew up in church and that was the message that you heard. You are a sinner. Thank God for his grace, but you're a sinner, right? You're a sinner saved by grace. And you better work hard on trying to manage your sin as a sinner because it's not honoring to Jesus, right? And so we're told initially, uh, come to Jesus, come to Jesus because he died on the cross for your sins and he's going to provide eternal life and come to Jesus. And we, we finally do. And then in the church, the very next day or the moment after or maybe sometimes even before, like now hold on, you need to be sure before you follow Jesus that you really understand what you're signing up for. You've got to give up this, you've got to give up this, you can't do this, you can't do that. I want you to know everything so you can really know what it is that you're getting into so that you don't do those things because this is what Christians don't do and what Christians do. Or we don't hear that on the one end of it and we, okay, I put my faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, yes, but now you know what? You're just a dirty, rotten sinner until Jesus calls you home, so you better get busy managing your sin. And so we're looking for the sin. We're constantly looking down. Where's the sin in my life? Where's the sin? Oh, there it is. I better not do that. I better not do that. That's the sin. Don't do that. And, you know, whenever we tell our kids not to do something, they just don't do it, right? <laughs> it's like they want to do it more. You and I want to do it more when the focus is on the things we're not supposed to constantly be doing, right? And so I'm a sinner. Where's the sin? I need to stop it. And we just get in this vicious cycle of sinning. We're trying not to. It's the thing we're trying to avoid, but it's like 
stronger temptation to do it even more. And so my question this morning as we continue our summer message series on identity and learning more about who we are in Christ is, are you a sinner? Is that part of your identity? Are you a sinner saved by grace? I ask you to turn to Romans 6. We'll dive into that in just a second. But before we do, let me just read to you what the Apostle Paul wrote in the very first line of three different letters that he wrote to three different churches. Now remember, when he's writing a letter to a church, a church is a group of people. It's not a building. This is a group of people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. And look how Paul is addressing each and every single one of the people in these three churches. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Colossians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints. All three times, he doesn't address them as sinners saved by grace. He addresses them as saints. Now, now some of you may think, well, okay, that doesn't necessarily prove that that's what our identity is, that we're not sinners saved by grace. Paul could have just been writing to three really good churches, <laughs> right? These people were all filled with saintly behaviors. They were just good Christian men and women, so that's why he could refer to them as saints, because they had saintly behavior. If you're tempted to think that, I want to point to you how Paul addressed the church at Corinth. He wrote two different letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And let me just tell you, if you've never read either one of those letters, this is a jacked up church. <laughs> These people are messed up, all right? I mean, we're talking about anything but saintly behavior. You've never read it, you would be shocked what Paul is having to address is going on in this church. And yet in the very second verse of the letter that he writes to them, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints. There it is again. Even to the most messed up church that we see in the New Testament that he's writing to, people who weren't abiding by saintly behavior at all, he still addressed them as saints. In other words, it sure seems like the title that he is addressing them with is not something that they've earned. It's not something they've earned based on good behavior and learning to be more holy in their actions and their behavior. In other words, it seems like a title that's maybe been given to them for some other reason. And what I want to show you is the reason that Paul can address them as saints this morning and not as sinners, and that that is their true identity in Christ, is that of a saint, and that is your Identity, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, also as a saint, a saint who sometimes sins, not a sinner saved by grace. Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says this to the church at Rome We are those who have died to sin. 
We are those who have died to sin. How can we live at it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will also certainly be with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died, underline this, has been set free from sin. There's so much that we could talk about in here, but I hope the thing that jumped out at you first and foremost is the fact that Paul says that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, that when he died on the cross, you died with him. When he died on the cross, you died with him. He says you've been baptized into his death. You were buried with him. The old self was crucified with him. He says it over and over and over again throughout Romans 6 here. So the question is, who's your old self? Who, who died with Christ? Well, the Apostle Paul in other places goes on to basically label people into two different categories. He, he either talks about people as being in Adam, or he refers to people being in Christ. There's only two kinds of people in this world. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. He, he says in, um, in Romans 5.12, just one chapter before the one I was reading to you here, he says, just as sin entered the world through one man, who's that? Adam, right? So just as sin entered the world through Adam and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And so, in other words, if you're in Adam, it refers to the fact, just like uh, he, he says here, that you have a sin nature, that you are spiritually dead and separated from God. But what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6 is that that old self, the one that was in Adam, died with Jesus on the cross. And now you're not in Adam anymore because you were not only forgiven when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but Jesus came to dwell in you through the Holy Spirit, uniting his spirit to your spirit, putting you in union with Christ. So now he can say you're not in Adam, you're in Christ. So now you've been changed. You've been someone else. So you died with Christ. You were in Adam. The old self died. And now not only were you, not only did you die with Jesus on the cross, but now you've been raised with Jesus after he died on the cross. You've been resurrected into something new. It's what Jesus was teaching about in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus when he was saying you've got to be born again right? The old you died, so you had to have a new you birthed. A spiritual birth took place. And so, again, what Paul is saying here, we had you underline it at the very end of 7. Let's look at it one more time. He says, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Listen to me. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, 
you no longer have a sin nature. You no longer have a sin nature. Now, some of you are going, okay, well, if I no longer have a sin nature, then how come I'm still tempted to sin? How come I still choose every now and then to sin? It's a good question, and one that I want to show you and explain to you a little bit further with some of the diagrams that we've been referring to throughout our identity message series. You'll see in this first one that this is a picture of us if we're in Adam. We're made of a body, a soul, and a spirit. We're spiritually dead. You can see the Holy Spirit is separated from us. It's outside of us. He is outside of us. And we have indwelling sin in us because of a sin nature. Look where the sin comes from. We experience sin throughout our soul and our body because it's part of our nature there as well. Right? It's, it's birthed out of there, and we experience it in all these levels, and it comes out of us, and you see it extension from outside of the circles because it gets cast onto other people and out into this world, and they get to be the recipients of all of that yucky, nasty stuff at the core of our sin nature. But once we put our faith and trust in Jesus, on this next slide, you see that now we're in Christ. The Holy Spirit is no longer outside of us. He comes to dwell in us, putting us in union with us. With Jesus, and you see what happened to indwelling sin. If Jesus is who you're in union with at the core of your being in a spiritual union, let me ask you this question Does Jesus have a sin nature? Of course not. And you're in union with Him, you've become a new creation in Christ. So, guess who doesn't have a sin nature any longer either? You. Right? If Jesus doesn't have one and you're in union with him and the new creation you've become is in him, you no longer have one. Now, because we still live in a fallen world, because we're not going to get new bodies until Jesus comes back and we go to heaven with him, we will still experience the effects of sin in our lives, but it moves to a different place. It's no longer part of the core of who we are. It's no longer part of our nature. But sometimes, you, because your mind is part of your soul, you're going to be tempted to think that you're a sinner. Sometimes, because you have emotions and you have indwelling sin that's still affecting those, you're going to feel like you're a sinner, or you're going to feel like you want to sin. Sometimes your body is going to have an urge to sin because you will still be experiencing the effects of those things, but it is no longer part of your nature. In other words, you now have a choice. You didn't before, you do now, right? And the other thing is, is when we feel these things, when we think these things in our mind, they're the things that are right in front of us. And so they're the things that we tend to focus on most of the time. And if we think in our minds that we're sinners, and if we feel like we're sinners, then because that's the focus, we end up engaging in those behaviors and we're attempting at those things in our flesh to not do those things. You go on and read throughout Romans. We're in 6. Go read Romans 7, and he's going to unpack how the law and trying to be religious and not doing those things. Paul says, you know, the very thing that I was told 
not to do, I wanted to do because that's what happens when we're trying to live in our flesh and what the law incites. It's there to show us our need for Jesus and that we can't walk in these ways. We can't be holy and righteous on our own and we need a savior to overcome them for us. So with the focus, here's what I want you to see. With the focus and we, us experiencing those in our mind and our emotions and the urges we have in our body, all those, we begin to feel, begin to think those are part of who we are. But Paul goes on in Romans 6. We've been addressing what, what he says is the truth, but watch the next step in the process now. Let's pick it up in verse 8. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now underline verse 11, in the same way now, Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Count yourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ. Some translations use the word reckon. It's, it's an accounting term. It's a banking term in the original Greek. It means that you can count on money being in the bank when you go shopping, right? If you are reckoning it, doesn't put money in the bank. It just allows you to swipe the debit card because you've considered it to be true that there was money in there, right? It's going to happen. You're going to swipe it. You're going to be able to purchase what it is because it's already in the bank. It's true that the money's there. Now consider it to be true. If you didn't consider it to be true, you wouldn't swipe your card because you don't think the money's in there to actually do it. I don't know if you see what I'm getting at. Let me, let me give you another illustration. Um, when did Ava break her ankle? Five or six years old. My daughter, Ava, broke her ankle when she was, my wife said it was five. She has a way better memory than me, so we're going with that, people. She was five years old. She broke her ankle. It, it um, may or may not have had something to do with her dad jumping on a new trampoline with her, but we're not going to talk about that um, this morning. Um, she broke her leg on the trampoline, and we went to the doctor. They took an x-ray, and they saw that it was clearly broken, and she had to be put in a cast. She was only five, kind of hard to get around on crutches, so they put her in a wheelchair, and we pushed her around, you know, where, wherever she went um, at home and at school, and picked her up to get in the car, and all of those kinds of things. Well, six weeks go by. We go back to the doctor. They take another x-ray, and the doctor comes back in the room before me and Ava and everyone in there and says, your leg is no longer broken. I've taken an x-ray of it. I've looked at the picture. It was broken, but now it's not. And so now you can go on walking. We're like, whew, yes. All right. Life is good now. And so we get back home and we get her out of the car and we put her on the ground. And guess what she doesn't do? Yeah, she doesn't walk. She doesn't walk because of what used to be true about her leg. She doesn't take the step of walking because of what used to be true. Her leg was broken. Now, she had heard the doctor say, it's different now. Your leg is no longer broken. That is what's actually true. But guess what she hadn't done? She hasn't actually considered it to be true for herself. She hadn't reckoned it. She hadn't counted it as her truth. In her mind, my ankle's still broken. So her beliefs 
about a false belief affected her actions to not experience the freedom that she had to be able to now walk and go wherever it is that she wanted to go. Was it true? No, it wasn't true. The doctor told her what the truth was, but she hadn't reckoned it. She hadn't considered it to be true. What Paul is saying is that you and I do the exact same thing. We hear this truth about we're no longer a sinner. We no longer have a sin nature. The old us is, is, is dead and buried and gone, and we've been raised up to something new, and we see it, but we skip a step of actually reckoning it, considering it, counting it as true, owning that that truly is true about me. Why? Because I feel like I'm a sinner, or I think that I'm a sinner. And we skip the step, and then we end up in an, a constant cycle of sinning over and over. I know the Bible says that I'm not a sinner, but I guess it's not really true about me, right? Because I always feel like I want to sin. You saw what it is that I just did. I think that this is who I am. Am. And so you and I, what Paul is saying, have to not only see the truth that we are a saint. I mean, that's what he did. For 10 verses there, he's trying to help you see that you're dead. Here's the truth. But he didn't stop. He said, now you've got to consider it to actually be true. Here's, here's how Dan Stone puts it in the book that he wrote called The Rest of the Gospel. He says, our true self is who we are at the spirit level. At the deepest level of your personhood, you are not a sinner. You are a saint. You are God's holy, righteous, blameless child. You have his nature. In your deepest personhood, your desires are not in conflict with God's will. Were you ever taught that growing up if you grew up in church? I thought my deepest conflicts and desires were definitely in conflict with his will. But they're not. If we're in Christ at the core of our being, our deepest desires are never in conflict with God's will. He says, your deepest being always wants to do your Father's will, just as Jesus wanted to do his Father's will. He says, this is your eternal, changeless identity. This is who you are. Listen, that you experience thoughts and feelings and behavior to the contrary does not change the fact only by accepting this by faith can we begin to experience its reality. To accept it by faith is to reckon it, to consider it to be true, to count it as true in your life. We don't feel like it's always true. We don't think that it's true. Our behavior may not always line up with that truth, but God says it's true, and if we walk by faith, then we will experience the victory and the freedom from those sins in those moments. This is really what happened to me with that accountability group that I was talking about. And listen, I'm not, I'm not saying accountability groups are bad. I'm really not. All right, I mean, now, if the motive was, like it seemed to be in the one I was involved in, that this is the secret. If you focus on your sin, and that we're going to ask you these questions, your behavior is going to line up and be more holy and more saintly, right? This is what's going to turn those into you. But once, I mean, it didn't work for me. I didn't experience victory in those ways. When I began to experience the victory of sin, was when I learned about my identity as being a saint and no longer a sinner. 
when I actually owned for myself and walked by faith that that was true, all of these areas that I was getting asked questions about that seemed so much of a struggle and I was focusing on them and the fact that I was a sinner, all of a sudden it just felt like the chains fell off. All of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I'm experiencing victory over the sin struggles that they were trying to get me to experience victory in over all those years by showing, me, showing up in me and asking me about them all the time and me having to focus and think about them all the time. And so, listen, being a saint and understanding our identity will allow us to admit when we mess up we can have accountability groups, and I'm all for being transparent. You've heard me preach on being authentic and vulnerable about what's really going on in our life. And the reason we can do that is because our identity is that of a saint. Your behavior doesn't change that. So now I don't have to hide behind my behavior and my actions and, oh, I lied to you. Let me tell you the truth now because I was scared about it. I can just admit it to you because it doesn't affect who I am. Who I am is who I am in Christ, and that never changes. And then I can accept the forgiveness that's already been provided for me and then begin to walk by faith again in the victory that he's already purchased for me over the sin that no longer rules my life and just keep going. So accountability groups aren't necessarily bad. Being open and vulnerable and having those kinds of things aren't bad, but if it has to do more with sin management, just stop. <laughs> if you feel like that's the way to live the Christian life is by managing your sin, my bet is that you're not experiencing very much victory over them. And if you feel like you are, my bet is that you're walking around in a lot of pride and looking down on other people and ultimately not because you're holier than all the other people, but just because you're really good about wiping some of them underneath the rug and only highlighting the ones that you're doing really well in front of other people. Our focus is to be on Christ we live the Christian life by focusing on Christ. We live the Christian life by focusing on what Christ has done for us, on who we've become in Christ, and now how he's working in us and through us. I close as I remind you about what Paul said in Romans 6. He said the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but listen to this, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In other words, he's saying that Jesus is still living his life, right? Jesus died, but he was resurrected. He's still living his life. Where does Jesus live now? In you and in me. So guess where Jesus is living his life? The life that he's living to God, Paul says. He's living in and through you. So do you really think God wants us to focus on all of our sin and walking around and the things of this world? He wants to focus on who Christ is remade us into and what he's doing in us and doing through us he's living his life in you and through you as you and you get to walk by faith that he's done all of this already and you have the victory and experience what it is that he and only he can do as the one person who's successfully lived the Christian life to do and continue to live in and through you